nei te kraipituri mo tata i tēnei rea mai te pukapuka o ngā mahi. Aroha mai whanau. It's going to be very long, so bear with me. Paul went on also to Derby and to Lystra, where there was a disciple named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer. But his father was a Greek. During the night, Paul had a vision. There stood a man of Macedonia pleading with him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. When he had seen the vision, we immediately tried to cross over to Macedonia, being convinced that God had called us to proclaim the good news to them. On the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate by the river where we were where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the woman who had gathered there. A certain woman named Lydia, a worshipper of God, was listening to us. She was from the city of Theatera and a dealer in purple cloth. The Lord opened her heart to listen eagerly to what was said by Paul. When she and her household were baptized, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come and stay at my home. And she prevailed upon us. One day... As we were going to the place of prayer, we met a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners a great deal of money by fortune-telling. While she followed Paul and us, she would cry out, These men are slaves of the Most High God who proclaim to you a way of salvation. She kept doing this for many days. But Paul, very much annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I order you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. When they had brought them before the magistrates, they said, These men are disturbing our city. They are Jews and are advocating customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to adopt or observe. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates had them stripped of their clothing and ordered them to be beaten with rods. After they had given them a severe flogging, they threw them into prison and ordered the jailer to keep them securely. Following these instructions, he put them in the innermost cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was an earthquake so violent that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were unfastened. When the jailer woke up and saw the prison doors wide open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, since he supposed that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted in a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. The jailer called for lights, and rushing in, he fell down trembling before Paul and Cyrus. Then he brought them outside and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They answered, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. They spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. At the same hour of the night, he took them and washed their wounds. Then he and his entire family were baptized without delay. He brought them up into the house and set food before them, and he and his entire household rejoiced that he had become a believer in God. After leaving the prison, they went to Lydia's home, and when they had seen and encouraged the brothers and sisters there, they departed. And together we pray. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Well, kia ora everyone. It's great to be here with you this morning. It's great to be finishing up our our series we've been doing on Acts. And um, I'm feeling very ambitious this morning, so um, I thought I'd begin my talk by beginning about the most single boring thing in the world. I'm not talking about uh, Andy's love for bird watching. Um, I'm not talking about Newt's thesis topic. I'm not talking about John's thesis topic. 
not talking about my thesis topic. Uh, I'm certainly not going to be talking about statistics from the Super Rugby final, super boring statistics like how the Crusaders had 57% possession, 21% defenders beaten, 98% of rucks won, two tries, 11 Super Rugby titles. None of these boring things I will be talking about uh, this morning, but instead I thought we could talk about coins. Is this the bottom of my sermon content barrel? Unfortunately, I don't think so. Uh, but coins, uh, coins do not have to be boring. Certainly the country of Somalia doesn't think so. They are a country that is weirdly obsessed with creating uh, quirky but mostly impractical coin designs. Take, for example, their guitar-shaped coins or their car-shaped coins or their animal kingdom-themed coins or my personal favourite, the hilariously inconvenient 3D geometric coins. <laughs> I can't think of anything more socially awkward than having a large metal cylinder in your pocket, but okay. <laughs> uh, if you look at a coin, uh, you'll probably notice that um, on the edges of a coin it has ridges around the side, and this is to, um, to uh, originally to stop something called clipping. People used to clip or file down coins uh, to gather little pieces of the precious metals on them, and then over time they would collect these, and then they could melt them down again and make more coins. That's pretty good, eh? Um, and these, these um, patterns were added uh, to the edges so the coins... Um, would be invalidated if someone tried to do that. And this was um, the thinking of Isaac Newton. Uh, interestingly, a hypothetical $1 trillion platinum coin was considered uh, multiple times by the White House over the last decade uh, to be made by the US Mint in order to breach the debt ceiling. Imagine having that bad boy in your pocket. Um, so now that we're very clear what I want to talk about, um, this coin existed in the time of Jesus, and on it, uh, printed on it, it says this, Son of God. But of course, it's not referring to Jesus. It's referring to the Roman Caesar, Caesar Augustus, whose um, face appears on the coin with a nose and chin looking like it might just connect if it just went a wee bit further around. <coughs> um, both Caesar Augustus and Jesus claimed the title of Son of God. Not only this, but listen to how Caesar Augustus is written about in the inscription called the Preen Calendar. It says this, the birthday of the God Augustus was the beginning of the gospel, the beginning of the, big, of the good news for the world that came by reason of him. Compare that with what we hear at the very beginning of Mark's gospel, Mark 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And now this is a, a little known fact um, about Jesus' claim of bringing the gospel. was It's not actually the only gospel in town. In the first century, we had two competing visions of what the gospel and the good news is. Two people were claiming the title of Son of God, and two people were claiming to bring the good news. There were two competing visions of the gospel. But it's the gospel of Jesus that remains today. It's the gospel that Jesus brought that has proved to be good news over time for a vast amount of people. Why? 
Why is it that it's the revolution of Jesus' gospel that continues as a powerful global movement today? And I think our passage in Acts 16 gives us some clues. In our passage today, we see three vastly different people from vastly different social classes, from vastly different walks of life, with vastly different issues and needs they were facing, all having their lives dramatically changed through the power of the Spirit. The first life transformation happens with Lydia. Lydia is the first convert to Christianity in Europe. And that Lydia as a woman is no small point. Uh, when you go to a new continent and you're participating in a revolution that Jesus began, an unfortunate reality of the uh, first century context is that having women supporters is uh, not really what you want for the credibility of your movement. But Paul is led by the Spirit to bypass this cultural expectation, continuing the tradition that we see all through Luke's writings and Luke's gospel and in Acts, that women have an integral part to play in the kingdom of God. Uh, Lydia is a particularly interesting character because she essentially was a well-off entrepreneur and homeowner. She sold purple dye, and most of the artwork of her features um, flamboyant, barney-coloured purple outfits, often making her look like one of the Ribena black currants. Now, selling dye doesn't sound like a particular savvy thing to sell, but the thing is that purple is the colour of royalty. Purple was a luxury good. And so it was the wealthy and the successful that would come and see Lydia and buy her dye. Essentially, she was the ancient equivalent of the owner of a Prada store, with less ram rates, hopefully. People who brought the color purple were entirely status-driven. We know this because purple dye was made by crushing thousands of shellfish to extract the color, and the smell was particularly awful. But people still did it because of what the colour symbolised. So Lydia had made quite a good business for herself. We hear that Lydia responds specifically to Paul's teaching. It seems what she needed was the cognitive offerings of Paul's preachings to become persuaded. And then we see her become a key part of the church's missions, especially through using her resources and hospitality. She not only has uh, Paul and Silas stay with her after a conversion, but after they um, get out of prison, they go back to her again. So firstly, we have uh, Lydia, the well-off businesswoman. Next, we have an encounter with someone who is practically the opposite to Lydia, the demon-possessed slave woman. She is uh, possessed uh, not in an exorcist, head-rotating kind of way, uh, but in Greek we are told that she has a pneuma pythona, the spirit of the python, which sounds kind of badass if you ask me, but it definitely wasn't a good thing. Um, the slave woman was said to have um, been an oracle of the spirit, which was said to speak to uh, through people as a ventriloquist would. And her owners uh, harnessed her spiritual condition for economic reward. Like an in-person psychic hotline, people would um, come to her and seek guidance and truth from her. And her unfortunate situation is not unlike that of over, the, um, of over one million women who are trafficked globally. We don't know much about her, which demonstrates her status further. No one knew much about her. The owner's reaction to her exorcism says it all. Instead of being jubilant about her newfound spiritual freedom, they are angry at the loss of income. 
Luke uses the same Greek word to describe the spirit leaving uh, the slave woman as he does the owner's income leaving them, drawing a strong connection. And it's this um, loss of income that caused her owners to seize and capture Paul and Silas, who were dragged into the market, uh, beaten, and then thrown into prison, which is where we meet the third person, the uh, Roman jailer. Uh, jailers were often ex or retired Roman military. They would um, settle into holding prisoners in Roman colonies, such as Philippi. Their military skills were helpful in uh, controlling inmates and uh, preventing prison escapes, um, apparently. And uh, the Romans were brutal. So we can imagine this guard had um, probably seen a lot and if not, inflicted a lot himself. He was neither uh, a slave nor a business owner, but worked for the state. So socially and economically, falls somewhere between Lydia and the possessed woman. He was a blue-collar worker who seemingly towed the line in following the state. Paul and Silas uh, sing and pray in prison. An earthquake comes, breaks them free from prison, but they stay because um, they're essentially already free in, in their eyes. And the jailer asks, what must I do to be saved? And they say, believe. That's all. He comes to faith, and like Lydia, he responds with hospitality. We should do a series on hospitality, and maybe 12 weeks will be good. Um, so why does the identity of these three people matter? How does this help us figure out why the revolution of Christianity took off? A.J. Fernando says this, Of the many conversions in Philippi, Luke highlights three people with significantly different backgrounds. A businesswoman who may have been single, a slave girl under bondage to a spirit of divination, and a jailer in a Roman prison. This choice is in keeping with the prominent emphasis in Acts on the fact that Christ breaks barriers that separate humans and so creates a new humanity. This is what the whole book of Acts has been about, the revolution of a new humanity through the power of spirit to renew all of creation. And the spectrum of salvation spans absolutely everyone. With our three characters, I like to imagine what their first church services would have been like in Philippi with this motley group of converts uh, uh, joining together from unimaginably different backgrounds with, I'm sure, plenty more characters joining them. Uh, Pastor Tim Keller charts the background of each individual person the following way, showing the diversity of each individual. This is very significant. The author of Acts, Luke, has chosen purposely to showcase the diversity of believers across race, economics, gender, and even spiritual condition to point towards a new humanity he's making from very unlikely people. This is not to dissolve all their differences, but instead to ground them in the Spirit of God. Unity is not mere sameness achieved by the reduction of people's identities, but instead finds its fullness in the context of the Spirit. And so for this reason, Christianity has been able to maintain at least some sort of cohesion and, for, and become the most diverse movement in the world. Because the table is big, and the table is big because the Spirit of God is gracious and it is a Spirit that seeks to restore all of humanity. I um, haven't been in ministry that long. I'm, I'm still young-ish. Um, but I have been in ministry long enough to meet people that I otherwise would have never met had I been outside the church. Diverse people who have had their lives transformed by the Spirit. 
a young Pākehā woman who was excommunicated by the exclusive brethren and is now a Baptist pastor, a young dad who was about to leave his faith until he encountered Jesus at a silent retreat, an Iranian atheist philosophy professor who came to Christ at an Easter service, a young woman who went from being constantly in residential mental health facilities to being a missionary. Just the other day, I met a young medical professional um, who has begun studying at Laidlaw, who had just been a Christian for less than a year, and in lockdown, he became aware that he was lacking something in life and encountered God through uh, chatting with a friend, reading the Bible, and reading C.S. Lewis. We are deeply, deeply connected with these people, not merely because of our shared beliefs. In fact, I'm pretty sure we'd disagree on a lot of things with these people. But because of our shared reality of the transforming power the Spirit has in our lives. The Spirit breaks down the divisions that separates humans in order to create a new humanity. And this unity through the transforming presence of God is exactly what the world needs right now. It's been said, I wonder if you've heard this, that we're living in, age, in an age of division, polarization, and tribalism. It hasn't always been this way. Uh, and in fact, amazingly, uh, 70 years ago, political scientists were saying that many Western societies weren't polarized enough. Interesting take, and careful what you wish for. But what we've been seeing is an increase of people clinging to group identities and separating into us versus them categories. This is what the um, World Economic Forum has said recently. There is a deepening distrust in each other, not just in institutions, <clears throat> with growing tribalism and intolerance of those with different beliefs and backgrounds. The perfect storm of conditions for social fragmentation come about from the convergence of economic sources and changes in culture, technology, and the media landscape. Against the backdrop of weaker social connectedness and the erosion of local community life, these forces often play into existing fault lines in societies, widening racial, religious, and ideological divisions. This has become even more true in the post-COVID world. Research shows that people in just about every Western democracy feel more divided than they did before the pandemic. And these consequences um, are not removed from our everyday life. Berkeley researchers Jeremy Smith and Zaya Jalini uh, have noticed the plethora of negative consequences caused by the division and polarization of the name of, of our age. To name just a few, they have argued that we are segregated now in our own communities. It's been demonstrated that our ideologies are spilling out into our spaces, that people are increasingly segregating themselves by political and party ideology, even in their residential communities. The segregation makes us more likely to demonize each other, and more and more people live alongside people who hold similar political beliefs to them. Our families are being undermined. Uh, they quote a recent study from the, um, from the US that showed how Thanksgiving dinners were significantly shorter in areas where Americans share meals across party lines. This effect was worse in areas with heavy political advertising, the researchers estimated that 34 million person hours of cross-partisan discourse were eliminated in 2016 thanks to this polarization effect. 
our political culture is becoming more and more antagonistic. Political campaigns across de democracies have become increasingly negative, focused more on tearing down our opponents than building up support for our own ideas. Citing another study from the States, they showed that during the 1960 presidential campaign, only around 10% of political adver advertisements aired were negative. By 2012, only around 14% of campaign ads were positive. Deception is more likely. Lying is often condemned when committed inside a group, but people tend to see deception as, um, sorry, outside a group, but deception is, people tend to see deception as valid when in conflict with another group. These kind of lies are called blue lies by researchers. We're losing trust in key institutions. People are losing faith in institutions that were once treated um, with a broad swath of the public, including higher education, which provides the bedrock of educational and research support for um, most businesses and civic life. Even the faculty at these universities are now polarized with very little political diversity among professors. This is also true of varying degrees um, for the press, for the military, for libraries, and other institutions that were once big tents for society. What we need is something to unite us. We need something beyond our ideologies. We need the good news that not only binds us together, but transforms us into a new humanity. What we need is the Spirit of God. In Ephesians 4, we hear this. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Notice it's the Spirit that creates the unity, but it needs to be maintained by those within whom the Spirit dwells. Gospel unity is grounded, and it finds its source in the Holy Spirit and the love of God. But here's where I think the real problem often lies. So often we can accept the fact that God might transform someone else's life. The jailer, the demon-possessed woman, the atheist professor. But we, re we resist the fact that God might want to transform our own lives. Transformation for thee, but not for me. Often we suffer from spiritual imposter syndrome, where we don't believe we will have uh, encounter or breakthrough or transformation or hear from God. Of all the unlikely people we hear about the Spirit transforming, still the most unlikely of all seems to be ourselves. And um, I'm often this way, even as a, as a minister to others, someone who sees God moving powerfully in other people's lives, there's always something within me that says, yeah, but, but God wouldn't do that for me. And so uh, I wonder if you'll join me this morning um, in open, opening myself to the possibility that God might actually want to transform my life, that God actually does want to meet with me. That as we, as we land the series, um, my prayer is that the Spirit will kind of bridge the theoretical to the real, that we'd be reminded that there is no criteria in this world, there is no litmus test or prerequisites to being transformed by the Holy Spirit. Everyone is welcome to be a part of this new humanity, even you. Let's pray. God, we, um, we thank you for the series that we've been doing where we can reflect on the genuine good news that you, through your Spirit, are transforming the whole entire cosmos. 
And God, this morning I encourage us to um, open ourselves to the, to the reality, to that fact that you and your spirit want to do a work in us, that you want to meet with us, that um, we hear all these stories about the amazing ways that, that um, your Holy Spirit can transform lives, but still we often have this resistance that says, that's not for me. You wouldn't do that in my life. And God, so I pray that um, we, would, um, we would respond to you this morning with a sense of openness, with a sense that, um, you know, I'm expecting that, that you want to move uh, in my life. And God, we pray for, for not just us as a community, but we, we look out into the world and we go, God, we need your spirit right now. We need your unity. We need people to be transformed by your love. Um, the last couple of years has been really disorientating. It's been scary. It's been anxiety-inducing. But God, we trust you, and we trust the work of your Holy Spirit. So we pray, come, Lord Jesus. Amen.